Thank you. I, I will ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. And we're going to be picking up where I left off. In fact, just a little bit of review before we, we move further. But um, when we look in chapter 9, beginning in verse 46, which I did touch base with last time, I looked at briefly, but I want to uh, look at that again. But before I do, the, the incidents that, that we are examining in the text this morning uh, represent a significant turning point in the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. From chapter 9 onward in the Gospel of Luke, we'll see that, that Jesus' primary focus is, is not going to be on the area of Galilee. But now his focus is on Jerusalem. And more specifically, his focus is upon a cross where he will fulfill his redemptive mission given to him by God the Father. So he's all about accomplishing the will of his Father. And so now as he's moving from Galilee towards Jerusalem, he is, he's got the cross on his mind, but also he's got a, a, a very imminent task because up to this point, Jesus has been teaching and educating and demonstrating to his disciples who he was or who he is. By, by miracles, by his supernatural power over the elements of nature, his, his power and authority over demons, his unrivaled divine authority that, that marveled people, and, and his ability to do what no person could do, and that is to, to raise the dead, to make them alive again. And so through all that we have seen in these previous chapters up to this point, Jesus has been educating his disciples to, to inform them, to reveal to them who he is. But now he's turned his attention to teaching and, and informing his disciples about who they must be as his followers because it's, it's going to be their mission after he ascends into heaven. And so uh, Jesus is, is pouring himself into his disciples to help them to come to understand just what their ministry and their mission is. And so the title of the message, even though the series is entitled Follow Me, and, and that is the underlying call from Christ to every person that is chosen by God to be a part of the kingdom of God. God is saying through his son, follow me. That's the essence of the Christian life is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we consider this call to Christian discipleship, Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching you and me. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? As is his custom, Jesus is the master teacher. But unlike maybe some of the popular teachers of his day, Jesus doesn't build a building. Jesus doesn't hang out a shingle and say, you know, advertising advanced kingdom of God lessons. But he's teaching as he goes. He's using real life situations that his disciples can experience along with him to teach his followers important truths, divine principles that will help to equip them to carry out the ministry that he is going to give to them as the leaders of the future church. So it's a weighty task that he has upon his shoulders to prepare these men. And we know they're not perfect. 
These men can't come from ordinary backgrounds. None of them are trained theologians. They're not a part of the religious establishment. And they, you know, they're just average guys. That Jesus has issued this glorious call to come and follow Him. And so Jesus is, is revealing here in, these, in, in this text and in, in the text to come, in the Scripture to come, uh, all about this call to Christian discipleship. And so as we consider this, I would challenge each one of us to ask ourselves, how do we measure up given the standards and the characteristics that Jesus is unveiling here for His disciples? Folks, He's speaking to you and He's speaking to me too. These are His divine expectations of every person who calls himself a Christian. And so we're going to examine some of those characteristics. And like I said, we will look back just in, in a brief review because we touched on this last time I preached in chapter 9, verse 46. Let me read that with you. Then a dispute arose among them, speaking of his disciples, as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him uh, by him. And he said, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. That's, that's strongly reminiscent of what the Lord says over in Matthew's Gospel, chapter uh, 20, verses 25, 28, where he says, if you desire to be great, you'll be your servant. Whoever desires to be first will be your slave. So that reversal there. But, but understand that the call to Christian discipleship, first of all, is, it is a call to authentic humility. How humble are you in the eyes of God? And so he's challenging his disciples to resist sinful tendencies towards prideful self-exaltation. Every one of us is subject to pride, sinful pride I'm talking about. Every one of us has a tendency to yield to what Jesus' disciples are yielding to here. His disciples had, had not only argued once, but they would argue several times. They would debate strongly a number of times, even up until the, the last Passover meal where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Why? Luke tells us in chapter 22 of Luke's Gospel, verse 24, that they were disputing even then as Jesus was hours from going to the cross. Who was the greatest? And so the Lord he teaches them a very valuable lesson. He teaches them by using a child. He brings a child and sits a child by him and he teaches them a, a lesson that demonstrates the stark contrast of, of God's kingdom requirements and principles than those of mankind. Look again where he talks about and he, Jesus, perceiving their thoughts and their hearts. We know that in Mark's gospel, they were walking along the road and they were back behind him. They were arguing and everything. And, and then when they got to the destination, Jesus, he knew what was on their hearts and he asked them, what were you arguing about? And they were, they were embarrassed to say. So he knew that they were disputing this. And with that, he brings a little child. And I explained to you last time, children in that time had no rights. They had no privileges. They were not considered significant. And he takes the, the least significant member of the society and says, unless you bring yourself to this level, humble yourself to that status of a child, he says, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. 
But when you do, he says, if, if you receive one as humble as this, you are receiving me. And when you receive me, you receive my Father who is in heaven. When we come to the Lord's table and we observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, I think this is a, a powerful reminder of the fact that every one of us are absolutely eternally indebted to our Savior who suffered horribly and shed His precious sinless blood on the cross to pay the price for my sins and for your sins. There's nothing that we have done, there's nothing we could ever possibly do to earn the favor of God, to rid ourselves of the penalty of sin. There's nothing that we could contribute to our salvation. We are ultimately, totally, wholeheartedly dependent upon our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, and not by works lest any man should boast. And so for those who are seeking to, to honor this call to Christian discipleship, it begins with authentic humility. I think about a song that uh, Jim Adams, a former member here at Cornerstone, used to sing. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There's no, there's no status or hierarchy among the people of God. Doesn't matter how rich you are, how educated you are. Doesn't matter what kind of family you come from, how popular you are. Everybody stands in absolute need before the cross of Christ. And so we must humble ourselves and resist the sinful tendency to exalt ourselves. That's a part of being a follower of Christ. And also, as we look further there in chapter 9, in verses 49 through 50, we see that you, on the same vein of thinking, we also must be willing to receive those who are different, but also share in our mission. I like the fact that in our worship guide, on a routine basis, a regular basis, we pray for other churches. And you'll notice not all of them have Baptists tagged after their name. But we understand that what they believe and what they practice is very similar. They are like-minded in their theological framework with our church. And, and we, we like to pray for like-minded churches. We're not confined just to one particular denomination or group. And so as we look here, and it's interesting, we looked at this previously and we'll just touch on it briefly. Then John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. And, and, and so John here has got a, a case of tunnel vision. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can also fall into that trap. Our pride can cause us and, and cause us to look at other people and, and ask, are they exactly like me? Do they think like I do? Do they do the things I like to do? Do they do it in the manner in which I do? Do I feel comfortable around them? And so if they don't fit that, we can develop that same type of tunnel vision. And this tendency towards tunnel vision, spiritual tunnel vision, was actually costing the kingdom of its redemptive work. Because John was wanting to cut him off. John was wanting to exclude him. John was wanting to push him outside of the redemptive work of Jesus and his disciples and discount what this man was doing 
even though he was doing an effective work. <laughs> he was casting out demons. He was doing it in the name of Jesus. And the Lord reminded John that we must, we must humble ourselves to look outside of our own tent. The Lord reminded John that he shouldn't forbid anyone who is not against us. He says, if they're not against us, they are for us. And so I believe the Lord is teaching his disciples, specifically John. And I think it's interesting we'll see how that develops with, with the Apostle John. But Jesus is opening the eyes of his disciples to see how self-centered pride can hinder the kingdom work that we're doing and others are doing. And he teaches them that there is room for diversity among like-minded, Bible-based believers. And so we embrace people who are sharing in our zeal to exalt the name of Jesus Christ and, um, and, and, and to be united. I think about what we touched on in our Christian growth group lesson this morning, and Brother Richard did a great job at the lesson from Ezekiel. And God gave this vision of prophecy through the uh, prophet Ezekiel of a, of a day, even in the midst of a time when ne the nation of Israel was so broken and torn and, 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 and lifeless. And God says, there's coming a day. There's coming a day as he used that object lesson of the two sticks that were bound together. He says, I'm going to bring my people back together. I'm going to unite my people. They, they're no longer going to be two. They're going to be one. And, and he's speaking of the great messianic age when Jesus will reign as a descendant of King David. He will be the ultimate David sitting on the throne and as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he will unite all people. So we have to resist that tendency towards pride. So the call to Christian discipleship begins with a call to authentic humility. And sometimes that's one of the hardest of the sins to deal with, pride, is because we don't want to see it. Our pride blinds us to our pride. Does that make sense? Maybe not. You think about it, go home and write something down. But anyway... It, the, the call to discipleship is not only a call to authentic humility, but as we look further in the scripture text today, we'll see that Jesus is teaching his disciples and as he's, he's training them for their qualifications to be his followers, his disciples, the call to Christian discipleship is a call to divine mercy. Mercy. I mean, how many times have we said, oh, Mercy. Lord have mercy on me. I can remember plenty of times as I would be listening to my mom, she'd say, oh, mercy, 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 mercy. You know, mercy is simply, you know, God withholding his judgment that we deserve or anyone else withholding that which we deserve. I remember when I was, I think in the third grade in the little um, six-room school that I think housed students from first grade to 12th grade, it was an all-Indian uh, school, and, and so uh, I remember sitting there, most of the students in my class were cousins, but anyway, me and one of my cousins sat right next to me were bragging about how tough we were, and, and so, you know, I just couldn't let him get the upper hand, so I told my cousin Dorothy, who sat right in front of me, I said, here, turn around and punch me in the leg. You notice I didn't invite him to do that, and, and, and I said, Punch me in the leg. Hit me as hard as you want to. You know, I thought if she was like my sister, she'd be happy to. In fact, she'd punch me in the face. But anyway, she she refused, and 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 that got on my nerves, and because I really wanted to prove a point. 
and she had this long, beautiful ponytail. And I know y'all find this tremendously hard to believe, but I grabbed her ponytail and yanked it, thinking that maybe I got away. But then I looked and saw the laser eyes of my third grade teacher beaming towards me. And I knew this was judgment day. And so anyway, she said, Charlie, I can come up here to the front of the class. And so I did. And I was humiliated. I was afraid. I didn't know what lie ahead. I didn't know if I'd live after this day or whatever. But anyway, she had me turn and face the class. And, uh, and she says, you know what you did was wrong, and it was hurtful. And she says, I got a mind to paddle you. And I thought, well, this will do it. But she said, Dorothy, what do you think? And I was thinking, well, sure, she's going to agree. And Dorothy said, no, no, I'm, I didn't hurt. I'm, I'm good, or something like that. And, you know, to this day, Dorothy is my favorite cousin. Um, <laughs> and every time I see her at family reunions, I'll be sure to give her a hug and offer to give her my firstborn or whatever. But anyway... She uh, totally indebted because she, she extended mercy. She withheld what I knew I deserved that day. And that, that lesson in mercy stuck with me. Well, Jesus is teaching his disciples here something about mercy. This is nothing new in the scriptures, not a New, Te new Testament principle. Listen to the writer in Proverbs 3, verse 3, Proverbs 3, 3. He says, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Did you see what the writer of Proverbs is saying? Mercy is right, right up there with truth. Let it be a part of the character that you have that others may see that. And so the call to Christian discipleship is a call to divine mercy, to exercise the mercy of God towards others. And we see here, as Jesus is teaching this lesson, he's reminding us our purpose of following Christ is all about saving and restoring. That's what mercy is about. Let's look together there uh, with these verses, verses 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be, uh, be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of, Sam of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Now just stop there for a second. This is, you know, John's Gospel tells us in chapter 4 that Jesus and his disciples intentionally went into Samaria to a village to a particular woman at a well, Jacob's well. And so there, you know, we know this is not Jesus' first venture into the region of Samaria, but it would be an unusual encounter because most Jews didn't travel through Samaria. They hated the Samaritans. And I don't have time to go into the history of that, but we've already seen how God took the northern ten tribes into captivity to Assyria. And then the king of Assyria replaced the population, if you will, with people from all over the region. And they intermarried with the Jews who were left behind. And these, these half-breeds, if you will, were, were considered to be lower in status by the Jews. In fact, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They rejected them. They hated them so much that in the intertestamental period, after the Samaritans had built their temple there at uh, Mount Gerizim, then the Jews came and burned it down. So needless to say, there's, a, there's great tension and animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And yet here's Jesus sending his disciples ahead of him to, to 
to simply make arrangements in the village for them to spend the night because he's heading to Jerusalem. And it was no secret. That was his destination. He was on his way to Jerusalem and that irritated the Samaritans because the Samaritans, you remember the encounter with the woman at the well in John 4? She was pointing out to Jesus that they worship at Mount Gerizim. And here comes Jesus and his determination to head to Jerusalem, to worship in Jerusalem. Well, this would infuriate the, the Samaritans. And so, so what we see here is, is Jesus' disciples' reaction to the response of the Samaritans to, re, they, to turn down Jesus, to not to be able to receive him and, and to pay hospitality towards him. And so as, as, as they go, look at verse 53. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. They sensed that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Therefore, he was not good enough for them. So they were determined not to let him spend the night. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, these are the sons of Zebedee, and according to the scriptures, we know they've got a little bit of a reputation. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus gave them a nickname, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. They're hotheads. How do we know that? Well, we go back to the text in verse 54. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did, these worthless Samaritans will do it. You just give the word, we'll be like Elijah. And it's interesting, a few hundred years before, of course, Elijah was in that similar region and did call fire down from heaven. But it was a totally different situation. As we look in 2 Kings chapter 1, we're not going to turn there today, but, but Elijah had been confronted by the wicked king Ahaziah, who had sent 50 soldiers out to arrest him. And, and they said, are you the man of God? Elijah's sitting up on top of a hill. And he says, I'll tell you what, I, kind of sarcastically, if I am the man of God, uh, fire will come down from heaven and burn every last one of you up. Poof, they were gone. The king Ahaziah didn't learn, so he sent another 50 out there to arrest uh, Elijah, to bring him in. He's sitting up on top of the hill. Same thing. The commander says, are you the man of God? <laughs> Same answer. You, you know, poof, burned them up. 50 soldiers and a commander. Finally, the king recruited another leader to go out with 50 soldiers, and he shows up. He falls down on the ground before Elijah says, please have mercy on us. <laughs> he didn't ask him, are you the man of God? He says, I know you have incinerated 250, uh, 100 soldiers, and, and we're here, and we're begging, have mercy on us. And he, Elijah did, and went back to see the king and set him straight. So, so with that, James and John, the sons of thunder, thinking, oh, we got, hey, we're going to be like Elijah. Give us the word, Lord. These worthless Samaritans, we don't like them anyway. We'll burn them up. And Jesus had to teach them a little lesson here in verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. That's a strong word. And says, and you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Gentlemen, you don't even understand who, who's talking here. You're not speaking on behalf of me or my father. You're speaking on behalf of that evil spirit within you. He says in verse 56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. 
So Jesus was imparting to his disciples, James and John particularly, but to all of those that were listening, that he was on a mission of mercy. His was a mission of mercy. His was not a mission to, to destroy. Jesus came to model godly, divine mercy towards lost, depraved, unworthy, wretched, rebellious sinners. I think about the mercy of Christ. And I think about that scene later in Luke's Gospel in chapter 23 and verse 34 where Jesus is hanging on that cross in absolute agony, struggling just to breathe, breathing to death, suffocating to death. And as he looks down at the foot of the cross, he sees the very mob, the soldiers and the Jewish leaders and those who are mocking him and spitting on him. And, 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 and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He didn't just teach mercy. Jesus exhibited mercy. And He expects His followers to have that same divine attitude of mercy towards others around us. I say the most qualified dispensers of divine mercy in the world should be Christians who know firsthand what it means to experience the mercy of God. If you're here today and you know that you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and you are living with the freedom of having the weight of your the penalty of sin lifted off of you and you know that the Spirit of God dwells in you and every night you lay your head on the pillow, you go to sleep with the blessed hope that if you don't wake up on this side of eternity, you will wake up in the presence of God in a glorious place that has no sin, no death, no problems. We will be in the very presence of God. Listen, if you are so blessed to have that mindset, it's only because of God's divine mercy. Who better to dispense to the wicked generations around us who deserve judgment, the mercy of God, than the people of God, reflecting His own divine mercy in our lives. And so as we see this, we see Jesus teaching this lesson. I think it's so interesting because you see, Jesus knew the mindset of the Samaritans. They weren't rejecting Him as Messiah. They weren't rejecting Him as God's Son. Jesus hadn't worked His miracles in Samaria. Jesus understood that these people were simply rejecting Him because He was a Jew on His way to Jerusalem and He was bypassing their place of worship. And so they wanted nothing to do with Him. And Jesus understood the importance of, the, of, of di displaying mercy towards those Samaritans. You know why? Because he already knew that later according to the biblical record in Acts chapter 8 verses 6 through 8 and then verse 25 that one of the deacons of the early church by the name of Stephen would venture after the dispersion of Jews from Jerusalem during the persecution he would find himself in Samaria. Guess what he was doing? preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guess what was happening? Samaritans were giving their lives to Jesus Christ and coming to know salvation. What if Jesus had not displayed mercy towards them that day? 
And Peter and John followed Stephen in doing the very same thing. And Jesus knew that. Oh, listen, we're not in the business of angrily attacking and judging those who are our adversaries and adversaries of the Christian message. But we are in the business of showing mercy. God's mercy. Sure, in our minds, they may not deserve it. But who are we to judge? Who are we to judge when God didn't judge us? Praying that the Lord would show mercy and grace to those who are lost and walking in spiritual blindness and rebelling against God ought to be second nature to us as Christians. It ought to motivate us to reach out to extend the mercy of God to those who are lost. You know who never got over that? The Apostle Paul, once Saul of Tarsus. When he was confronted on the road to Damascus on his way to continue to persecute Christians, who better in all the world deserved to be incinerated on the spot than the man who hated Jesus and persecuted his church? Who better deserved to die? And yet Jesus called Paul to be his missionary, his messenger to the Gentiles. And Paul never missed a beat. All the way to the executionist acts. Paul never lost sight of the fact that God had shown him mercy and he preached a message of mercy. Oh listen, the call to Christian discipleship is a call to authentic humility. It's a call to divine mercy. But also see with me there, it is a call to unconditional commitment. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Look with me beginning in verse 57 of our text. First of all, following Jesus and being a disciple means exhibiting unconditional commitment, making Jesus Christ our number one priority. Verse 57, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone, stop there just a second, because if you were reading Matthew's parallel version in Matthew chapter 8, in verse 18, Matthew says this was a scribe. This was a Jewish scribe. It wasn't just someone, though Luke didn't bring that detail into play here. That's significant, folks, because we know that the scribes, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes were avowed enemies of Jesus. They were seeking to destroy him. They were seeking to stop his ministry, his message, the whole bit. Here's a scribe stopping Jesus and said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Man, that sounds good. That's what you want to hear when you're out there sharing the gospel and you're sharing the good news with people who are lost. You want to hear them say, hallelujah. I'll go wherever Jesus wants me. I'll do anything he wants me to do. But there's more to the story because Jesus knew the man's heart. He knew the man's heart because Jesus understood that this man, being a scribe, no, no, noticing the vast popularity of Jesus with the crowds, thinking he would, he would ride the wave of this great religious movement, capitalize on it, 
get, hey, live a comfortable life, be popular, be, you know, renowned. Oh, listen, he saw this opportunity and he jumped on that bandwagon in a heartbeat. He said, count me in, I'll be with you all the way. Jesus knew he didn't know what he was talking about. Because the Lord replied in verse 58, foxes have holes, birds have the, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, a term that Jesus alone used of Himself, but used it frequently in the Gospels to describe His humble state as, as God in humanity. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. I challenge you. Give me a physical address for Jesus Christ when He was here on the earth. Oh, we know He was at Peter's house. We know He was at Lazarus' house. But where was His house? What do we call home? Well, we, we know that would be heaven, right? <laughs> Did he have a place of his own? And he says, you want to follow me and live the good life? He said, let me make you fully aware, young man. It's not an easy life. It's a life of day by day, depending on God. And so Jesus read his heart. You see, this is what we have to remember when we talk about being a follower of Jesus Christ is that we don't go into this. We don't follow Jesus for our personal pleasure and for our gain. Some people are like that today. They'll call themselves Christians. They'll affiliate themselves with the church, you know, because they want people to like them and they want to be popular. And so some people will affiliate with the church or call themselves Christians, but they're, not, they're like this man. They just want the benefits of being associated with Christians. That's becoming less and less and less because Christianity is not as popular in the culture in which we live as it was in the culture that I was born in. But then again, still. Have you noticed even during the election season how spiritual political candidates can become? At least in one party. I mean, they're talking about their church affiliation and, and, and how they believe, and you know, which I hope they truly do. We need godly leaders in Washington. But it is a call to unconditional commitment, not based on what we're going to get out of it. Our commitment to Christ is not subject to our convenience. Look at verse 59. Then he said to another, this is Jesus to another person, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, but the dead, and Jesus is speaking of the spiritually dead, don't you be so preoccupied with burying relatives. Let the spiritually dead take care of those mundane tasks. He said, let the dead bury the, their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And there again, Jesus understood the heart of this, this man. You see, in Jewish culture, then and, and, and a lot of times today, I'm assuming for those who are Orthodox Jews, when a person dies, they're not like Christians. They don't hold the body and bomb the body and, and, and keep it for several days and then have a you know, service or memorial service and then eventually get around to burying it. You bury that person that day. So it stands to reason that if this man's father had died, he probably wouldn't be out there dealing with Jesus. He'd be at, at home digging a grave and taking care of burial preparations for his father. So Jesus knew his heart. Jesus knew that this man was just buying time. He was simply saying, look, I, I, I kind of like the idea of following you, but you know, really, at this point, it's just not convenient. Because I, 
What he's willing to do, typically for the Jewish men, would be wait around. And, and when his daddy died, then he would inherit the inheritance, get all the money. Then he said, Jesus, I'll follow you then. So it could have been two weeks from that time. could have been two months from that time. could have been two years from that time. In other words, I'll follow you, but I'll do it when it's convenient. Folks, I hope that's not your attitude towards being a Christian. I hope that doesn't represent your thinking when it comes to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Because you see, it's not about our convenience. When Jesus says, come, follow me. Do you remember his original call to his disciples, his apostles? Do you remember when he went to, to Peter and James, John, Andrew, there by the Sea of Galilee fishing? And he said, simply come and follow me. Did any of them say, well, Jesus, wait a minute. We've got to take care of selling off our business and, and liquidate our you know, assets. And then when we get everything settled, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up with you. Uh-uh. What did they do? Dropped their nets. Left their families. And followed him. What about convenience? What about when he confronted Matthew, Levi, the tax collector? There he was with a lucrative business. Money galore. Sitting there at his tax desk. And Jesus looks at him and simply says, follow me. You don't see Matthew or Levi saying, well, 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 wait a minute. You realize I'm working for other people. I've got to settle the things. I've got to get my debts covered. I've got to you know, cash in on all my tax collections. I've got to notify Rome. Uh, and get, and you know. No. Got up from the table and followed Jesus. So you see, this is what it means. We've got to make Jesus the number one priority. If we're going to be followers of Christ, we've got to be able to do it and make Him the focus of our lives. Look at verse 61. And another also said, Lord, I will follow You, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now you'll notice, all of these excuses tend to have a little bit of reason into them. You know? But Jesus sees through the shallowness of the commitments and understand they have no idea of what it really truly means to follow Him. And so He's pushing back on them. He knew their heart. Listen, making Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives means that He has to be the focus. He has to be the number one priority of our lives. And that's what Jesus is saying there. Look at verse 62. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And I remember my dad, maybe it was my granddad, teaching me how to plow. This was when they still plowed horses. And I'm going to tell you something. You have to be a man's man to follow a horse with a single blade plow. Big old two-ton, <laughs> look like workhorse, and, and pulling that plow and just digging deep into the ground. And, and, and you've got to make a straight furrow, a, a row, and, and you've got to control that horse, you've got to control that plow. And, and, and you know, I remember thinking, I've got to do this right, I've got to do this right. You know, the worst thing I could have done once that horse started pulling, that plow started digging, was to look back over my shoulder and say, hey, Dad, hey, how am I doing? You know, I'd have been flipped over to the plow. The horse would have stepped on me and that would have been it. You wouldn't have had to preach it. Well, no, maybe not that drastic. But you don't look back. And Jesus says that. To be a true disciple, a follower of Christ, when you hear the call, 
And he says, follow me. It's not a time to look back and wonder about what if and what if. You follow him, he becomes the ultimate focal point of your life. He knew the hearts of these men, and he knows your heart too. And he knows my heart. I heard one preacher say, either he's a Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. It's not just good enough to say Jesus is my Savior, though He is. But Jesus didn't die on that cross and, and shed His blood so that you could simply say, Hallelujah, I'm not going to hell. He died for your sins and my sins for a purpose. And that was so that we would invest the rest of our earthly life in choosing to follow Him, to, to imitate Him, to those and to share the good news that we ourselves have been the recipients of and to never take our eyes off of Him. Because I promise you there will be those who will want to distract you, dissuade you, discourage you, beginning with Satan and his entourage. True discipleship begins with true salvation. True salvation is evidenced by an active commitment to complete self-denial. Let me say that again. True salvation. First of all, it's not an event. Like a Friday night in a revival service. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is much more than that. It's more than an event. It's more than an emotion. Some fiery preacher jacking your emotions up in some tear-jerking song causing you to run to the altar blinded by tears. The emotions will fade, folks. It's not just raising your hand or signing a card. You show me in Luke 9, 23 where Jesus said anything about that. He says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. It's serious business to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And you will see this taught and emulated and stressed from this point on, through the rest of His earthly ministry, He's pouring this into the hearts of His disciples because He knows they'll never start a church. They'll never lead a church. Unless they get it. You may recall, weeks ago, I offered what I consider to be a good definition of Christian discipleship offered by the late Dr. Avery Willis. He said, Christian discipleship is a process of developing a lifelong, obedient, personal relationship with Jesus Christ in which He transforms our character, in which He changes our values into kingdom values. And He involves us in His mission in our home, in our church, and in the world. Does that describe you? You said, preacher, my goodness, isn't there a lighter way that you could preach this message? I mean, couldn't you make it just a little bit more, you know, appealing to us? Why has, has it got to be so heavy? One simple answer. Because this is heavy stuff. You know why I know it's heavy? Because there's a verse in Matthew's Gospel that just haunts the daylights out of me. 
When I think about family members and friends who routinely call themselves Christians, and Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. When you think about all the people you know who in a flippant second will say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And if you read the text of the Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus makes it abundantly clear the minority, the minority make it to heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the expressed will of God through the lips of the Son of God. And the standards for being a disciple of Jesus Christ have not changed and they will not change. I don't care how cultural Christianity tries to fluff it up and make it more appealing and easier. Read the Word. And know that you know that you know when you breathe your last breath on this side of eternity, that you will step into the presence of the Lord. I'm going to offer a prayer and then I'll ask Pastor Mark to come. And I know customarily we sing, Blessed be the tie that binds. And we'll ask everybody to circle up and we'll sing that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word is truth. Your Word is infallible. Inerrant, eternal, never changing. Just what you said to your disciples then, Lord, you are saying to every one of us today. Lord, I pray that none of us will be deceived by the false teachers and preachers and prophets out there today who would seek to water down the Word of God. I pray that every person within hearing of my voice knows with certainty that they are a part of the family of God and have indeed made a true commitment to follow you. And we'll give you all the glory and all the praise. Help us, Lord, to share the message of the gospel, to be dispensers of your grace to those who need to hear, to share the mercy of God to those who are right now in the crosshairs of your judgment. And may you be glorified as those who hear the truth choose to follow Christ. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.